Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And in this episode, I was still at the hospital, so please forgive the audio quality. But we are talking about a very important and unique topic today. And this guest is a professor of global health and environmental and occupational health sciences at the University of Washington, holds a PhD and MPH in epidemiology, as well as a master's in toxicology, has uh, been researching the health risks of climate variability and change for over 25 years with over guess what number? 200 publications and an author on multiple national and international climate change assessments. She's also worked with multiple countries in Central America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and in the Pacific to help them assess their vulnerabilities to climate change and help them also implement policies and programs to help kind of prevent things in the manner of climate change. So as you can tell, this is an episode about climate change. I'm very excited for this. So here we go with Dr. Christy Ebby. Overcoming saber-tooth tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And this episode is coming to you from the hospital. I haven't left here yet, so you'll see a slightly different background than my usual setup. But uh, today I'm very excited to bring to you another episode. And this is a, uh, a topic that I've been trying to talk about on this podcast for so long. Because like I talk about uh, many times, the things that we do on a personal basis definitely have an impact on our overall health, but there are much larger things at play, such as the environment, which we'll be exploring today, that also have a massive impact on our overall health. So today's guest is uh, Dr. Christy Ebby. Um, she is a researcher over at the University of uh, University of Washington, um, and she has been doing a lot of research in this. Um, you'll hear her entire credentials in the introduction, so I'm not going to repeat it again, but um, let's get into it. Welcome, uh, Dr. Ebby, for coming on this podcast. Thank you for your interest. Absolutely. So the first question kind of is, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? I know you research kind of more about the climate and its impacts on health, but can you describe that in your own words? I have been working on the interface between climate change and health for over 25 years. And I've had the privilege of working on all of the issues of a health impact of a change in climate. And so I can talk about lots of different aspects today, depending on what your area of interest is. Absolutely. And what are some of the things that you're currently actively researching? Because I know there's a lot on your plate. I have a project with the National Institutes of Health, working with colleagues in South Africa and Cote d'Ivoire, developing heat wave early warning systems. I've been working on heat wave early warning systems for well more than 20 years. I'm also doing some work with the World Health Organization and the Western Pacific Regional Office, where they are in the process of receiving funding from one of the adaptation funds to increase the resilience of their health systems. That's that's phenomenal work. And the reason, the way that I found out about you actually was you were on the uh, Freakonomics MD podcast um, talking about the impact of heat. And I thought that's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. And then I started reading 
a fair amount of your work and what you've been doing. And I think that's absolutely tremendous. So I'm excited to get into it. Um, our kind of hallmark question before we get into the meat and bones of this is kind of on prevention. I was telling you a little bit before we started that um, everyone has a slightly different idea of what prevention means to them. And I think your work is very largely tied with prevention to some degree. So for you, kind of what does that word mean? What is it? What are those feelings of prevention to you? I'm a trained public health professional. And prevention then means the wide range of activities to ensure that people don't needlessly suffer and die. Absolutely. That is, that's a great definition. I love how it speaks to like the large aspect of it. So let's get into this, the, the meat and bones of this episode. And I think the first question, I know you're an expert, so this question might be a little bit insulting to you. But unfortunately, when we're on uh, social media and browsing through a lot of these things, there are a lot of climate deniers out there. There's a lot of people who don't think that anything is going on despite wildfires and all of these um, catastrophic weather events that we're having. And one that you're researching is the heat. Um, can you kind of explain what kind of climate change we're seeing as kind of a broad overview before we get into the meat and bones? First of all, no questions problematic. All questions are good questions. We know from observations that temperatures are rising that it's warmer today than it was a couple of decades ago. And when you look in any location for what the temperature pattern is across the year, you see a bell-shaped curve. And that's the general distribution. And there's one for every place. With the rising temperatures, we're seeing a shift in the mean of that distribution. So the mean temperature is rising but we're also seeing the curve lower and moving further out to the high end. So we're seeing a very large increase in extreme temperatures. There is well-documented evidence that there's been an increase in the frequency, intensity, and duration of heat waves. There's now many places around the world, including Seattle last year, where we had heat waves that were considered virtually impossible without climate change. Mm. Yeah, um, I my brother actually lives in Seattle, so he lived through that, and it was very unseasonable for him. And then speaking from personal experience, I was just in California, which is also undergoing a massive heat wave where the average temper, temperature was um, above 100 degrees, and they had heat warnings everywhere, and it places massive stress on all parts of infrastructure, which we'll dive into here. Um, people say that temperatures have been warming forever. They say that if you look at the Ice Age, sure, we're warmer than that. but how is this warming different than anything that we've seen in the past? It's a good question, and it's a little hard to do without a graphic. There have been periods in time where temperatures were warmer than today, but they were long before humans were on this earth. And when you look from the time that humans have been on this earth, and when our societies developed, when our ecosystems developed, we're above where we've been historically, with different kind of infrastructure, different kinds of challenges. I don't recall the exact number, but we're in the over 400th month where the monthly global mean temperature is above the long-term average. Mm. If you work backwards, this means anyone born after about 1980 hasn't seen quote-unquote normal weather that there's wow. been this continual change in terms of the global mean surface temperature and a very large increase in the extremes. 
Absolutely. And we were just talking a little bit about heat, such as in Seattle and uh, in California just now. Um, I'm going to ask you kind of on a very blanket term. I know there's a lot of different moving parts of this and we can dive into that. But on a broader term, why is excess heat so dangerous to our health? You're a physician. You know this better than me. But when we think about our bodies, we think about our core body temperature, not what you take with a thermometer, but the actual core. And your core body temperature functions within a pretty narrow range to protect our cells and our organs. We have a range of physiological mechanisms to try and keep that core body temperature within that range when we're exposed to higher temperatures. And if those mechanisms, sweating, for example, are not sufficient, and if our behavioral responses, going and finding some place to cool down, also are insufficient, our core body temperature then rises to a dangerous level. When you look at the excess deaths after a heat wave, so you look at the number of deaths that occurred over and above what you would have expected during that period, about half of those deaths are from cardiovascular causes. These are, for example, people who died of a heart attack who would not have died otherwise. So we see this real increase in heat-related deaths, and in many places also a real increase in hospitalizations. The numbers can be very large. In 2003, there was a couple of more or less back-to-back -back heat waves in Europe, and the estimate was 70,000 people died who would not have died during that period without the heat. Yeah, absolutely. So that, that can definitely have a direct impact. And as a physician, I see this. I've covered multiple uh, marathons where obviously we're not getting heat waves and no one's running a marathon or 110 degrees. But if the body does start to heat up at that point, it overcomes certain regulatory mechanisms. And at that point, the body can't cool itself down anymore. And this is oftentimes what we see in instances that you're talking about. Um, one follow-up question I have to that, however, is that some persons who have access to things like air conditioning, a safe facility that will protect them from the heat will say, okay, that's no big deal. I have air conditioning. Um, but that unfortunately is very short-sighted because there's a lot more that excess heat can do to our health indirectly. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? Well, first of all, you're very fortunate if you've got access to air conditioning. Not everybody does. And when a heat wave goes on and you look in some places, heat waves can go for days, in some places more than a week. How are you going to, how are you going to stay cool? Are you going to stay inside for the entire time? Some of us have had a lot of practice with that with COVID, but we still have challenges with always being indoors. And when you have higher heat, as we're seeing in California right now, there's been calls for several days for people to cut back on the use of air conditioning because there's a challenge that the power grid could fail. And then you would be in your residence without air conditioning until they could get the grid back up. So there is no guarantee that if you have air conditioning that you won't be exposed to the heat. And then think about our outdoor workers who have to work in construction, the farm workers who have to work during this high heat. Pregnant women are at particular risk during high temperatures if they're exposed to heat waves towards the end of their pregnancy. They've got a higher rate of low birth weight babies. Babies come early. Adults over the age of 65 also at higher risk. And as a natural part of the aging process, people become less well able to tell they're getting into trouble with the heat 
So often older adults just aren't aware that they're getting into trouble and don't seek medical attention when they should. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things I've been a little bit more interested in um, than in the past, and I have limited time, so I haven't been able to fully research this, but also the effects of heat on things like malarial diseases and general infectious diseases increasing. Have you looked into that at all? There, sure the, <laughs> there's, there's quite a bit of research, primarily on dengue fever and on mm -hmm. malaria, although in the Americas there's research on West Nile virus and on Lyme disease. And with higher temperatures, we're seeing a change in the geographic range for the vector that carries these diseases, the mosquito or the tick. And so yes, for Lyme disease, there's been an increase in the geographic range, particularly into Canada, that did not used to have Lyme disease, and they now do have cases of Lyme disease and increases in the geographic range for the other diseases. So a spread for more infectious diseases in a warmer climate. Absolutely. So I think what we've just talked about here is that it's kind of multimodal and multifaceted and it's very short-sighted just to say, oh, I have air conditioning. I'll be protected from the heat. Whereas we start thinking about things like power grid failures, as you just talked about in California. And just, we were talking about this. I was personally in California and there's signs everywhere on the highway for limiting energy consumption from 4 to 9 p.m. But obviously people are not going to do that because they want to be cool. They'll use their air conditioning units. And then if you come to a power grid disaster, then no one will have air conditioning. There's things like malarial diseases and just various uh, insect and tick-borne diseases that will increase as well um, as a result of heat. And then we've already talked about the kind of direct um, aspect of heat-related disease and heat-related excess deaths as well. So obviously there's a lot going on with heat and there's a lot of ways that heat can impact our health and be dangerous to our health. Does that kind of sum everything up? It's a good summary. Absolutely. Is there anything else you would add to that summary? I'm sure there's many more ways that you can think of that I can that heat might impact our health. As temperatures rise globally, the biggest impact is likely to be on our nutrition. And that is from two different mechanisms. One is higher temperatures mean that crops in some of the vulnerable parts of the world will be growing at the thermal edge of their tolerance. And all of the projections suggest, particularly around the tropics, a decline in crop yields. There's about 820 million people in the world who are food insecure. The projections all suggest a big increase in the number of people who are food mm. insecure. The second mechanism is through carbon dioxide itself. There's been field experiments primarily with wheat and rice, where you've got a field, you divide it into plots, and some of the plots you blow carbon dioxide over and some you don't. Mm. The carbon dioxide concentrations expected later in the century, the rate we're producing greenhouse gases, there is in wheat and rice about a 10% reduction in protein, about a 30% mm. reduction in B vitamins. And then also because these plants are better able to manage water in a higher carbon dioxide environment, they pull in less water from the soil. And that results in about a 5% reduction in micronutrients. I mentioned 820 million people in the world are food insecure. About 2 billion have micronutrient deficiencies. About wow. 1.5 billion women and girls have iron deficiency anemia. All of the projections around these changes in the nutrient density of our food from higher concentrations of carbon dioxide project hundreds of millions of people could be affected.
Yeah, that's something that I didn't even think about. And I haven't even, I've never researched into the effects of kind of climate change and different nutrient profiles as well. And realized that there's so many people that are right on that brink of kind of nutrient deficiencies and are nutrient deficient just because kind of these staple crops, which would get affected by climate change. And more to think of it, these people that are now affected by these kind of adverse uh, changes in the climate would likely move and have to relocate to other places, which would cause kind of refugees and all of the other things that come with that. And as far as uh, challenging infrastructures of various countries, kind of the global economy, all those kinds of things. So the changes here are kind of they're, they're um, successive in nature. They just keep going. They build on each other. It's very complex. So thank you for shining a light in that as well. Um, you mentioned these vulnerable populations. Um, are these the people that are going to suffer the effects of climate change and the worst? Who is going to suffer? Where in the world? What are these kinds of people that will suffer it? Can you talk about that? The poor and the marginalized will be those who suffer the most. When you look at greenhouse gas emissions, 80% of emissions come from just 20 countries. There's over 195 countries in the world. So most of the world is going to be affected, even though they contribute very little to the greenhouse gas problem. You think about all of the islands in the Pacific and in the Caribbean facing sea level rise. With sea level rise, you have a nonlinear increase in storm surge. And so they're looking at real challenges of whether they can maintain their culture on the island in which all of their ancestors lived. There's also challenges with the coral atolls because they've got a freshwater lens. And with higher sea level, there's pressure on that freshwater lens. And they're starting to get in some places saltwater intrusion into the freshwater lens. So real challenges with the small island states, with coastal communities, and by and large, anybody who is poor and marginalized including here in the US, we spoke about heat. And we know that part of the redlining process was there were fewer trees planted in redlined districts. And so redlined districts are hotter than the surrounding areas. Mm. When you have a heat wave, you have both higher temperatures. Also, many redlined districts are food deserts. They don't have access to food that people in other areas of the community have. And so they tend to have higher prevalence of diabetes, heart disease, the kinds of conditions that make people more vulnerable to higher temperatures. So real compounding challenges for the poor and the marginalized with climate change. Absolutely. I think that uh, many people um, that are out there are obviously privileged to these kinds of things. They don't realize that um, we might be the ones contributing to these kinds of effects in the climate, but we won't be the ones that are going to be suffering them first, at least. Um, it'll be those kind of that are either the poor or the marginalized as you're talking about, or those in other countries that are going to suffer them the most. And for that reason, a lot of us don't think that climate change is affecting us. It's not happening. Nothing's real. But unfortunately, there are people out there that are experiencing this. That's absolutely um, true. And there's a field of research called detection and attribution, which does pretty much what the name implies, that you detect whether there's been a change and I'll use heat as an example of whether there's been a shift in heat-related mortality over time. And when you detect that change to determine whether or not climate change made a difference in that. With health, there's lots of reasons why we could see changes in the burden of disease. We could have better systems, we could have new technologies. And so you need to parse out why 
there has been this increase. And the bottom line of the studies that have been published and that are coming out show that there is a significant fraction of heat-related mortality is due to anthropogenic climate change. People are dying today because of climate change, and that includes wow. Americans. Yeah, a uh, follow-up question to that. I was just talking about these people who might not realize the effects of climate change. Um, what are kind of some of the effects that someone like myself who has access to air conditioning, who has higher socioeconomic status as a physician, what are some of those effects that I might be facing or persons that are listening to this podcast might be facing that currently they might not be? The list is pretty long. We talked <laughs> briefly about changes in the range of diseases like dengue fever. And dengue fever is going to become much more prevalent in the US, depending on what we do with our vector control programs. Ozone is a lung irritant, as you know. Ozone's on, formed on clear cloudless days. The rate at which it's formed is temperature dependent. So all else being equal, if we don't change emissions from our tailpipes, then increase in ozone. And that will affect lots of people who've got any kind of chronic lung disease. Pollen, spring is coming sooner, fall starts later. And so there's been a real increase in pollen. Lots of studies are looking at pollen and showing in fact that there is an increase in pollen and pollen related disorders. So anybody who's again got some kind of respiratory condition, somebody who's got asthma, there's more pollen. So there's lots of different ways that our health will be affected, it's already being affected, and will be affected more in our changing climate. And thinking about all the different ways that our systems reflect and interact with temperature precipitation patterns and what that means. I tell my students when they get to be as old as I am, they're gonna look back and think about how nice the summers used to be. Summers are gonna be hotter and they're gonna be more humid because warmer air holds more water. Mm -hmm. We're gonna see more flooding events because warmer air holds more water. The massive flooding that we've seen in the last year or two, you just have these very large deluges that we didn't used to have in the past. And our infrastructure is often not ready for that. We often haven't built our infrastructure for the climate we're moving into. And that transition will be pretty challenging in lots of ways that will affect our health and our livelihoods. Really quickly, you mentioned that it would be your students that would be experiencing this. Do you think that we're, we're within one or two generations of seeing a lot of these larger changes that you're talking about? They're happening now. We're seeing changes now that when I started working in this field, I didn't think would happen until mid-century. And so the changes that are coming are coming quite rapidly. So I mentioned this particularly to my students, but I'm also looking at my own future, that I'm going to be affected in my own mm -hmm. future by all the changes that are going on. And so we need to think not only about the future generations, which we really should do, but also think about our own futures and how we're gonna be affected by these large scale changes that are ongoing. We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content relating to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventedmedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. 
So the first half of this episode, we kind of talked about some of the effects that uh, climate change and excess heat have on our health. And now the second half of this podcast, I kind of want to dedicate more towards what we can do about it. And obviously, we're not going to reverse climate change within the next five or 10 years. We're not going to suddenly put AC on the globe and make the temperature come down rapidly. But we can do, We there are some measures that we can take. I'm going to start from a personal level and kind of build it uh, on a larger and larger scale. So first, we're all facing increased heat. Uh, there's increased heat waves kind of in California and Seattle that we've talked about. There's flooding. But those are all kind of larger events that on a personal level, we can't really control. So on me or you, what can we do to prepare and prevent excess morbidity and mortality that could come due to increased heat? Awareness. There are multiple sources where you can go and look at how you can maintain your core body temperature in higher when there are higher temperatures. Things like putting damp towels around your neck, putting your feet in cool water, sitting in front of a fan and spritzing yourself with water so that you have more evapotranspiration. And that really does cool you down. There's lots of steps that people can take. And the more you know about those, the easier it will be to implement them when a heat wave comes. You don't wanna try and do it while you've got the heat wave ongoing. And make sure you know where to get information about the heat. The National Weather Service puts out information. There is a new website under the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. I think it might be heat.gov that provides lots of information for people to go to to see what it is they need to do. And we need to think about our family, our friends, our neighbors, and make sure that we look out for them. I mentioned adults over the age of 65, pregnant women, make sure we really pay attention to whether they're getting into trouble with the heat or not. And so that actions can be taken to help prevent them from suffering heat strain. Definitely don't want them to have heat stroke because there's high mortality from heat stroke and often mm -hmm. lifelong morbidity. So awareness is a really important issue. Another aspect I should mention is that many cities have heat wave early warning systems. Know if your city has one, lots of cities do. Know what kind of services that they offer. Do they have cooling shelters? Find out how you can find out that information so that if you need to take action, you can do so. Now, one of the other things that you mentioned earlier on was that those who are generally um, with diseases like diabetes, hypertension, obesity are more susceptible to the effects of heat-related change. Um, do you think that adding a personal kind of um, get healthier is a good message to add out there, or is that not really constructive in your opinion? It would be great if people would take up that message. <laughs> There's a long history in the US of various groups putting out those message for lots of different reasons and the uptake hasn't been where it needs to be. But it does remind me that there's opportunities, I think, to work with pharmacists, for example. They know every prescription drug every single one of us takes. They know our age and know a little bit about our comorbidities from the prescription drugs we take and thinking about Physicians, others, pharmacists, and others who can provide information to individuals to make sure that they're aware of their level of risk during a heat wave and make sure that they know what it is they can do. Absolutely. That's, that's great. I wish everyone would just take up Get Healthier. If it was only that easy, it would be, uh, my, I wouldn't have a job here then. 
Um, moving on from the personal level, I want to go to the community level. You mentioned things like cities having early advanced warning systems, but what else can a community do to kind of um, be prepared and be ready for when these things happen? An effective heat wave early warning system is an all of society system. So it's not just from the health department, it's not just from the meteorological services, but it includes the trusted voices for the red line communities, the people who are responsible for elderly care facilities. It includes the hospitals, the emergency departments. And so it is an effort to make sure that all aspects of society are working together. It needs to be done at the community level because each community has strengths that you can draw on for these kinds of early warning systems. And again, preparedness is really important. When we had the heat dome here in the Pacific Northwest, there was a 69-fold increase in heat-related presentations to emergency departments. Mm -hmm. They were pretty overwhelmed. They managed as they typically do, but it was very difficult for them to manage. And they were not prepared. So they hadn't done any kinds of stress testing. They hasn't done any kind of desk-based exercises to say, what would you do if this happened? And what happened here in Seattle was typical after an early warning system in that the first, you don't see mortality start to increase for about 24 hours. So the hmm. emergency departments for the first 24 hours thought we're doing pretty fine. You know, a few people are coming in, it's not too bad. You hit 24 hours and as I mentioned, a 69-fold increase. Yeah. One of the things the emergency departments found to be very effective is when people came in with very high core body temperatures, is people were put into body bags and ice was put in the body bags to help bring that core body temperature down. One of the emergency departments almost ran out of ice. There wasn't the planning for what are we going to do with this large number of people coming in. So the answer to your question is you need all of society engaged and you need to have efforts of thinking through what would you do and you need to think through what you would do not in the context of previous heat waves but in the context of much more intense heat waves for example in the heat dome in oregon in portland there was an assumption that some proportion of people would go to their cooling shelters on the light rail system but the rails are tempered to a particular temperature so when you mm. set up a railway system, you decide what temperature the rail should be set to. I was in London for their heat wave earlier this summer, and their rails were tempered to about um, 75 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. The temperature was 104. It was unsafe to run the railways, so they had to shut down wow. most of the railway because it just wasn't safe if they ran the trains too much, they would deform the railways, which mean you would have no railways for a considerable period of time until they fix that. And so thinking through, it hadn't been a consideration either in the UK until they had this massive heat wave or in Portland, all these different aspects that no one of us can know everything about. And making sure that you have all of society at the table, the building managers, the railway managers, uh, your power utility so that there can be the coordination and collaboration that you need. And finally, there are two cities that I know of, there are probably more developing in the U.S., have named heat officers. 
And these are people hmm. who are named to be responsible for the heat wave response in a city to make sure that there is that coordination, to make sure that everybody understands who can do what, when and how they're going to do it, what kinds of resources they're going to need, and make sure that when you have these big heat waves, it's possible to manage them effectively. And these are the kinds of things that no one thinks about because no one thinks about will the train be able to run when it's this hot? Because everyone just assumes, oh, we have transportation. So if a health system is based on kind of access to transportation using a train, let's say in Chicago, the hospital that I used to work at was very close to a, um, a CTA station. Um, so if they're assuming patients are coming from that, if it's too hot, they're not. All of a sudden, patients can't come to the hospital. They can't get treatment. Um, these are the kinds of things that I love talking about when it comes to prevention because no one thinks about these things, but they're incredibly important. And when the time comes and there is a heat wave, that's when everyone's like, oh, we should have been doing this like months, years ago. And this is exactly where the idea of prevention comes in because we're talking about these things months and years in advance and anticipation so that when these events do occur, that we're prepared and things can happen. Um, thank you. Thank you for illuminating all those things for me, especially too. Yeah, no, I'll add to that. There's a quite a significant heat wave a few years ago in Victoria, in Australia. The airport was closed because it was so hot, the tarmac was soft and you can't land planes into soft tarmac. They were fairly close to having to shut down their water supply because oh again, the parts in your water treatment pumping systems only operate to a certain temperature. And so, yes, it's really important that people who know about these are in these kinds of issues are engaged in heat wave early warning systems. And it's not just left to health professionals because we'd never think of it. Absolutely. And kind of expanding a little bit more, this might be a little bit more speculative than what's actually happened. But from a country's perspective, you talked about kind of tarmacs not being functioning at a certain temperature, uh, water treatment facilities and all those not functioning. Are these things that countries should start thinking about and implementing kind of as a national infrastructure against heat? Because are they, they're either investing in lowering the uh, kind of effects of climate change to whatever they can, or should they be preparing this? What do you think from such a broad perspective? They need to do both. Adaptation <laughs> and mitigation are equally important. So both are critically important. And there's lots of roles that in the US our federal agencies can play. When you think about heat, we've got NOAA, that's long National Geographic and Atmospheric Administration. It's long been involved in this issue. The Weather Service sits within NOAA. FEMA also now is involved. CDC has been involved in heat for quite some time. So we have agencies that are engaged. And one additional activity I think they could undertake is to help facilitate the coordination. That Seattle, of course, is now developing a heat wave early warning system. At some point, there'll be one in Spokane, there's going to be one in Bellingham. But if you looked at a map of how many tens of millions of Americans right now are under a heat warning, it covers multiple states. And as cities start developing these early warning systems, how do they find out what are the best practices? How do they gain the lessons learned? I happen to know that the city of Phoenix has a very extensive heat wave early warning system, and most of their deaths are in the unhoused. So if I wanted to know what kinds of things you could do to protect the unhoused, I would call up Phoenix. But 
I happen to know that because of the work I've done, it doesn't mean that people in cities around the U.S. would know that Phoenix would be a good place to reach out to. And so having some kind of coordination, as I said, where you've got an agency that you can reach out to and say, I want to develop an early warning system. I don't want to have to start from scratch. Can you tell me what are some really good pointers for how to get a system up and running quickly to protect people from dying from the heat? Absolutely. I think, um, well, I hope we get a little bit more of that and places start coordinating because we're definitely starting to see more and more of the effects that we've been talking about during this podcast. Um, what we've talked about in the first half is kind of what the effects are of heat and climate change on our health, kind of from a personal level up to a much larger level. Um, and then kind of the second half, we so far we've been talking about what we can do from a personal all the way up to a national level on the effects of heat. Then the last thing I want to ask you on this podcast, kind of as a and a continuation of that speculation, I always love asking kind of these pseudo-philosophical speculative questions is that, what do you think the forecast for these health outcomes is going to look like? Because if you look on um, social media somewhere, you'll have people that say, oh, it doesn't exist, we'll all be okay. Um, and then you have people saying that I'm not going to have kids because they're going to live in an environment where there's climate catastrophes everywhere. What is your personal take on this? The future is in our hands. And the extent to which people will suffer and die in the heat, the extent to which people will die from preventable climate sensitive health outcomes depends on our choices in terms of reducing our greenhouse gas emission. It depends on our choices and who we vote for. If we really care about these issues, if we vote for politicians, we'll stand up and say we need to make a change. And it's gonna depend on what we do in terms of our health systems in making sure that we are prepared for the changes that are coming. And when you look at those projections and there's a fairly large number of projections for heat, for malaria, for dengue, for a couple of other climate sensitive health outcomes, they all say that if we're proactive in terms of reducing our emissions and proactive in terms of increasing the level of prevention, then in fact, we'll likely see a small increase in climate sensitive health outcomes that we'll have to be prepared for, but it will not be the disaster scenarios that could mm. occur if in fact we don't take action on either front. That is a very level-headed and thought out explanation. I appreciate that. Um, on social media and on various other outlets, you'll either get one side or the other, but hardly do you get someone in the middle who's talking in this kind of uh, logical sense. The last question I have for you is kind of a play off of our original question that we asked to every guest, which is how do I get healthy in two minutes? But we're talking about the climate, which is a little bit different than personal health here. So let's say you are at uh, Starbucks, you're at the original roastery in uh, Seattle, and then you're waiting in line for your coffee and someone asks you, why should I care about climate change? What do you answer them in the time that you are waiting for that coffee? I'm usually asked the question of what is it that I can do? Uh, it's our future. It's your own individual future, what your own individual future is going to look like. The future for your family, for your friends, for your colleagues. And depends, as I said, the future is in our hands. And often people ask the question of how do you not get discouraged with all the change that's ongoing? And I like to point out that we're already seeing a transition. People hear that we have to transform our energy sector, for example. It's already happening. It's not something in the future, it's today. 
My best example is I recently went grocery shopping. I parked in an underground parking garage. I was carrying my groceries back to my car. And I swore I heard wind chimes. And mm. I was trying to figure out, I was calculating the distance to the exit. Could there be wind chimes in the neighborhood around the grocery store? Decided not really. I just couldn't figure out how I could hear wind chimes in this underground parking garage. And I finally realized what I was hearing were all the electric vehicles. I didn't hear a ah. single internal combustion engine. And I stood there and thought, this is what the future sounds like. That kids are going to grow up being in underground parking garages and they won't be stinky. They won't be full of exhaust from cars. You won't hear <laughs> combustion engines. You hear the little tinkling of electric vehicles. The transition's underway. And the more we can help facilitate that, the faster we're going to get to the kind of society we would like to have in the future. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for that. I love ending on a note of optimism. It's one of the best ways to end um, instead of being climate apocalyptic. Now we have something to look forward to. We have actionable steps that we've talked about. We've talked about things from a personal level all the way up to what countries and kind of society should be doing in general based on your work and your thoughts. Um, I think this has been an absolutely incredible episode. It's been very insightful for me, myself as a physician, um, kind of being aware of all these things. And I hope our listeners have gathered some value as well. So thank you very much, Dr. Abby, for coming on this podcast. Thank you very much for your interest. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention, first off, rate and review this podcast. Second off, you can find our content on our social media platforms at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one.